You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 16, the Treaty of Paris and the John Wilkes Affair. So last week, the British crushed the Cherokee uprising on the Carolina frontier, and the new Butte Ministry began picking off French and then Spanish colonies in the West Indies and around the world, all the while looking for some way to end the war before Britain drowned in debt. Although the war in the North American continent had essentially ended in 1760, General Amherst would have one final tussle with the French in 1762. With the French gone, other than small contingents in Louisiana and the Mississippi Valley, and with the British Navy preventing any cross-Atlantic attacks, Amherst focused the bulk of his limited resources on the Ohio Valley and the Great Lakes region, where Indians were likely to be his greatest problems. He also looked further west to Detroit and the Illinois Valley to make sure those western tribes were aware that the French were gone forever and that they would be working with the British going forward. As a result, a pacified region like Newfoundland had only a token force of 300 regulars. In May 1762, a few French ships slipped past the British blockade. A force of about 800 French regulars landed on St. John's in late June. The British garrison on the island was focused on preventing enemy ships from using the waters. When the French landed on the other side of the island and attacked by land, They took the local garrison by surprise and occupied Fort William relatively easily. Now you might ask why the French landed only a few hundred troops on an island isolated without any support or hope of reinforcement, given the continuing British blockade. Certainly 800 French troops were not going to retake Canada. Rather, the importance of holding the island was to provide a basis for a continuing claim to fishing rights in the North Atlantic. This was a major economic boon for the French, who did not want to relinquish it when the war ended. The French realized they could not hold out for long if the British made any serious effort to reclaim the island. But if they continued to hold it when the treaty ending the war was signed, it would help support their claim for the fishing rights. It took months for Amherst to assemble and deploy an army of a thousand regulars and militia, and some estimates say this as high as 1,500, to retake the fort. Meanwhile, the French prepared for invasion by setting up defensive artillery on the high ground known as Signal Hill. General Amherst's own son, Lieutenant Colonel William Amherst, led the British force, which landed in September 1762. He was able to surprise the French by scaling cliffs on the seaward side of Signal Hill. A brief but bloody encounter ensued in what is known as the Battle of Signal Hill. The British captured the high ground, From there, they began a bombardment on the fort itself. The isolated French army surrendered after three days. The British once again held the island, captured the French forces prisoners, 
and eventually returned them to France. This final battle with the French in North America was minor and the outcome was virtually guaranteed, but the French incursion should have been a lesson about leaving small outposts who would be unable to defend themselves if trouble actually came. After General Geoffrey Amherst's armies expelled the French from Montreal in 1760, he set about establishing military governments to maintain the newly conquered territories in Canada and the West. The British divided Canada into three military districts. Quebec remained under the command of General James Murray. Trois-Rivois fell under the command of General Ralph Burden. And Montreal became command for General Thomas Gage, who had been promoted to Brigadier General a short time earlier. In total, Amherst had about 16,000 regulars to maintain order in all of North America. In London, that seemed like too much. Almost immediately, London began reducing these numbers with instructions to deploy 2,000 to the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean, immediately, and to plan for another six to 7,000 to be deployed in the fall for a planned invasion of Martinique. By the following year, cost-cutting measures and demand for soldiers elsewhere had cut Amherst's North American troop levels below 8,000 regulars. In order to maintain control of all the forts and outposts, Amherst would be forced to rely on colonial militia, which he had come to despise almost as much as the militia despised him. Amherst was also under pressure to cut costs. One easy cut was the large and expensive annual gifts that the British gave to friendly Indian tribes. Now that the French were gone, there was no need to buy the friendship and loyalty of local Indians. They had no choice but to work with the British. Despite the warnings from Indian agent William Johnson, Amherst reduced or eliminated all government assistance to the Indians. Another major problem was supply of all the outposts. Military units from Pittsburgh to the Illinois Valley had to be supplied with food and other supplies. The cost of shipping that hundreds of miles was expensive. Amherst began permitting settlements around most of the forts and outposts. That way, local farmers and hunters could provide food to the outposts at more reasonable prices. The settlements also provided some outlet for pressure in many colonies for western expansion. By controlling settlement to specific areas, Amherst hoped to avoid the problem of settlements popping up all over the place at random and causing problems. The settlements around forts provided crops and a local market for trade goods that benefited the garrisons. So, as long as everyone was satisfied with that and followed his orders, there would not be any problem. Administrative costs would fall and peace and order would prevail. Who thinks that's going to happen? Amherst continued to require more than 10,000 colonial militia to help maintain the forts and relieve regulars who were needed elsewhere in the empire. Continued subsidies from London assured payment and the continued participation of militia in almost the numbers that Amherst had requested. In both 1761 and 1762, the colonies, with notable exceptions of Pennsylvania and Maryland, provided over 9,000 men. Many served full-year terms, allowing them to be used as fort garrisons far from home. Even so, militia costs remained high. Without any immediate danger of invasion, most colonists wanted to get back to their lives, not perform garrison duty in some far-off wilderness fort. Amherst continued to loathe the colonials. 
They rarely meant enlistment quotas. They tended to show up late to relieve soldiers. They were, in his opinion, overpaid and still managed to enrich themselves even more by embezzling supplies whenever given the chance. Even worse, colonial merchants continued to trade with the enemy. Trade with the French islands in the West Indies remained a profitable market for New England merchants. Amherst's views were fairly common among British officers. What the British never really appreciated was that colonists were not in the same desperate circumstances that many British peasants found themselves back in the British Isles. The abundance of land and rapidly growing number of towns and villages meant that most young men in America who were willing to make an effort could find themselves working their own farm or succeeding in some professional trade. In Britain, the lack of opportunity drove some young men to accept the miserable life of a professional soldier. Colonists, though, had other options. If you wanted to enlist them, you needed to pay them enough to have recruits give up their other opportunities. Now, militia costs were only a small portion of the increasing war debt that drove the ministry to end the war as soon as possible. Despite the continuing British victories, Prime Minister Butte was determined to end the war. Through the spring and summer of 1762, Butte met secretly with French Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, the Etienne Francois de Choiseul, the Duc de Choiseul, offering quite generous terms to bring the war to an end. Only the king himself knew about the negotiations. When the negotiations became public, the rest of the government and the British public were outraged at how much Butte had offered to give away from the hard-fought victories of the war. Grenville refused to have anything to do with the negotiations, meaning the ministry would need a new advocate in the House of Commons. Butte finally turned to our old friend Henry Fox, who we haven't heard from since episode 9. Although Fox was not popular among the public, he was an able tactician and skilled at moving legislation through the House. By November 1762, Britain, France, and Spain had reached a preliminary treaty based on the Butte-Choiseul negotiations. Britain had conquered the French colonies of Canada, Guadalupe, San Lucia, Dominica, Granada, St. Vincent, the Grenadines, and Tobago. It had also captured a number of French trading posts in India and along the African coast. Further, it had captured Spanish colonies in Manila in the Philippines and Havana in Cuba. France had captured the British island of Menorca in the Mediterranean, as well as a few British trading posts in Sumatra. Spain had captured the British fortress of Almeida in Portugal and Portuguese colony Colonia del Sacramento in modern-day Uruguay. Under the treaty, Canada would remain in British hands, as would almost all lands east of the Mississippi River. France would receive only the right to two small islands off the coast of Newfoundland, Saint-Pierre and Miquelon. The value of these islands was to give the French the ability to have a base to exercise their fishing rights off the North Atlantic coast, the highly profitable French industry before the war. The rest of Canada had largely been a financial drain on France. Losing it was not considered a terrible loss. Of much greater importance was the recovery of Guadalupe, Martinique, and St. Lucia in the West Indies, all of which provided highly valuable cash crops for France. Britain did also hang on to several other West Indy islands, including Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, and Tobago. 
the treaty permitted France to retain ownership of land claims west of the Mississippi. However, France had already ceded that territory to Spain in the secret treaty of Fontainebleau in 1762. Even the French negotiators were unaware of this secret treaty at the time they negotiated the Treaty of Paris. I've never read a definitive explanation as to why the French gave up that land, but maintaining a small strip between the Spanish and English claims would have been an untenable and expensive position in the long term, with no obvious economic benefit. Further, it may have been a continuing inducement to keep Spain in the war with England. Also as part of the Treaty of Paris, France and Spain ceded back all the territories captured from Britain. Britain returned Cuba and the Philippines to Spain, but in exchange Spain ceded East and West Florida to Britain. The Florida lands had not even been in contention during the war. It was, however, the price Spain had to pay for recovering Havana, and it ensured there would be no continuing border disputes between Spain and Britain in North America. There were a few other detailed provisions, but that's the main gist. If you want to know more than that, you can read the full text of the Treaty of Paris, and I have a link to it at my website, amrevpodcast.blogspot.com. The public opposition to the treaty ran high in Britain. Butte was accused of giving away the hard-won benefits of the war. William Pitt had to be carried into the House of Commons on his sickbed to deliver a three-and-a-half-hour diatribe against the treaty. Despite public opinion and Pitt's opposition, the treaty easily sailed through the House of Commons with 80% support and a voice vote in the House of Lords. The final treaty went into effect in February 1763. A week later, Prussia and Austria entered their own treaty, which essentially gave each side back what they had prior to the beginning of the war. So, with all the paperwork done, what became known as the Seven Years' War finally came to an end. Before we return to America next week, I do want to touch on one final subject in England, which helps underscore the deep divisions in England and introduces a British radical who became a champion in the colonies during the fight for liberty. As I mentioned, although the Treaty of Paris swept through Parliament, it remained highly unpopular with the British public. Its main advocate, Prime Minister Lord Bute, became the subject of public scorn. Still, the opposition needed a focal point from which to attack the ministry. John Wilkes was a minor member of the House of Commons and a longtime ally of the Pitt faction in Parliament. He was also an outspoken opponent of the Bute ministry and its policies. After Pitt resigned from the ministry in 1761, his brother-in-law Richard Grenville, Second Earl of Temple also resigned. Now don't confuse Richard Grenville with his brother George Grenville. George Grenville had replaced William Pitt as Secretary of State and was still in the ministry, but Richard Grenville, also an ally of Pitt, had left the ministry. I'm going to refer to Richard Grenville by his title Temple so we don't get them confused. So after leaving office, Temple decided to finance Wilkes as editor of a newspaper called the North Britain. The newspaper was dedicated to attacking Butte personally, as well as all of his policies. In addition to its attacks on the Treaty of Paris, the North Britain savaged Butte over his cider tax. This tax was a relatively minor but highly unpopular tax on cider production in England. Parliament had enacted the cider tax in hopes of defraying some of the costs of the war. But the public hated it. 
not only because of its cost, but because of its intrusion of tax collectors into their businesses. Shortly after the Treaty of Paris concluded in 1763, Bute decided the public attacks, many of them from the North Britain, had just become too much for him. He resigned as prime minister. The king, not happy about the resignation, grudgingly decided to make Temple's brother, George Grenville, the next prime minister. You would think that victory would be enough to calm the opposition. Wilkes, however, decided to take things up a notch. When the king gave a speech to Parliament regarding the Treaty of Paris in 1763, the North Britain issued a scathing criticism. Now, it was one thing to attack a politician, but going after the king himself was quite another. In defending himself, Wilkes claimed that he was only attacking the speech, which he said Bute had written, not the king. But that subtlety was lost. The government brought charges of seditious libel against Wilkes and 48 co-conspirators, threw him into the Tower of London, and issued a general warrant to search for incriminating papers. Unlike a regular warrant, a general warrant permitted authorities to use their own discretion to decide who and what to search. There were virtually no limits to it. Overnight, Wilkes became a hero to the opposition, condemning the attack on free speech, free press, and the use of general warrants. Wilkes's real saving grace, though, was that he was still a member of Parliament. Members could only be prosecuted for a few limited crimes, such as treason. Seditious libel was not among those crimes. So after a week in the Tower, the court released Wilkes, who promptly brought a legal action for trespass against the Secretary of State, the Earl of Halifax, for issuing general warrants against him. However, the government was not done with Wilkes. Among the papers seized at his home was a work entitled Essay on Women, which was an obscene parody of Alexander Pope's Essay on Man. Accused of blasphemy and pornography, Parliament began an action to expel Wilkes from his seat, after which time he could be prosecuted for his crimes. Wilkes fled to Paris before Parliament could complete the expulsion. In 1768, though, he would return from exile and almost immediately be re-elected to Parliament. Still eager to resolve the legal actions against him, Wilkes waived the parliamentary immunity and was sentenced to two years and a fine of £1,000 sterling. He then submitted a petition to the House of Commons complaining of the illegality of the proceedings against him. On February 3, 1769, the House of Commons expelled him once again, only to see him re-elected again on February 15th. The House then expelled him one more time, along with a resolution saying that he could not serve if elected again. Once again, though, the voters re-elected him. But the House seated his opponent, being the candidate with the most votes who was eligible to serve in Parliament. Wilkes continued to be involved in radical politics for decades. He won election to numerous other offices, including Lord Mayor of London, where he played a minor role in publicizing the battles of Lexington and Concord, and which we'll discuss in more detail in a future episode. In 1774, he won another seat in Parliament, which finally this time allowed him to take his seat. Wilkes became a hero to radical Whigs in Britain for his stand on free speech against general warrants and for the idea that voters should be permitted to choose their own representatives. His politics played particularly well in America 
where many of his positions became political fodder for independence and eventually found their way into the U.S. Bill of Rights. Next week, we're going to return to America, where I want to talk about three topics that start to show the cracks between Britain and her colonies. The Parsons case, where we meet a young lawyer named Patrick Henry. The Bishop's Controversy, where New England Puritans' continuing dislike of Church of England flares up. And third, the growing colonial concerns over Britain's renewed interest in enforcing trade tariffs. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.